Now, believers believe the parables here, but how you understand these parables is going to affect your eschatology, what you think about how the Lord is going to return. I was reading this morning, I just want to briefly reread uh, the first psalm before I address these uh, parables. Remember, psalm, the first two are like the gateway, the portal to the book of Psalms. And the second one, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Mashiach, his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Ah, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. Adonai holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's Jerusalem. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's coronation. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So every, every Jewish person that understood this would say, you'll, you'll, you'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel at, at his return. So kings, serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice with trembling. You better kiss the sun lest he be angry. You perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. The day of his wrath is coming to, to fulfill that. So I was reading this morning, and it really jumped out to me in Psalm chapter 20. The 20th Psalm. Actually, the 21st. Your hand will find out, I'm in verse 8, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Well, when's this going to take place? When is the king going to do this? What is the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of heaven? And to that we turn in the parables of Matthew chapter 13. Lord God in heaven above, thank you that in wrath you have had mercy, grace and peace and righteousness have kissed at the cross. Thank you for the provision for sin that only you can provide. Thank you for that great invitation that still stands today. Come, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is, is kind. It's easy, and my burden is light. Thank you for the narrow gate. We were all on the broad road leading to 
destruction and you have drawn us in through Christ, through the narrow gate where we don't take along that baggage of sin. It won't fit. We have to discard it. But the road, the road that leads to life that few find is difficult. And yet, you are there with us, guiding us, directing us, enabling us, and we look forward to the full, final arrival at home. And so while you have us here, help us to be a people of the book, a people of prayer, people who love one another. Give us understanding as we work through these parables. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we will come to the presentation of the wheat, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, Trevor led, read, first of all, from verses 24 through 30, where it was presented to the multitudes, but the explanation was only given later on to the disciples. I take the disciples there. It wasn't just the 12. It was a larger group that was following Jesus, they came and asked him about this. Now, this may seem a little unusual in Matthew for the arrangement because you find in the first parable is the parable of the sower, and then you have the disciples come and ask for an explanation from that, and then what Matthew is doing is inserting that earlier in the text, but he doesn't give them the explanation until the end. And the way that is seen in the text, you see the parable of sowers, and then verse 24, he put another parable before them, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and the them are, is the multitude. Same thing in verse 31. He put another parable before them, verse 33. Put another parable before them. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him. Explain this as the same way we saw back in the preceding when they were asked in verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables? So we have backtracking to the beginning. We're here at the Sea of Galilee. And it begins in 13.1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house, the house that he was in in 46 through 50, where his family showed up, and they wanted to take him away. They thought, Some, something wrong here. He's not eating properly. He's, he's too obsessed with this thing about kingdom and heaven and, and, and doing miracles. And he said, no, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother or my sister and mother. And then the same day, that same day, he goes out of the house and he sits beside the sea and great crowds gathered around him. So setting the setting here where that house is apparently up here at Capernaum. 
My eyesight's getting too bad. I can't find where the arrow is. But if you look at the top, oh, it's working on there somehow. Anyway, you look at the top, the northern part, and you see Capernaum, and then right sort of southwest, you'll see the Mount of uh, Beatitudes, and then right there with a little yellow dot, it'll say Cova the Sower. Cova the Sower. That's where, um, all right, we're, we're starting out at Capernaum. Um, uh, and by the way, some of you say, where'd you get a picture from the 1980s? Um, this was put together by uh, Dr. Todd uh, Bolin. He was the guide for us when we went through uh, Turkey and uh, um, Greece with uh, a busload of uh, college students there from uh, the Masters University. There was a Mon and I were invited to go along, so we went. There were a few profs, a couple of other people, but most of them. It's is an interesting trip. I, I don't think I could do it again physically. Um, so we, Mon and I, we're shot at the end of the day, and, and we're you know just let me get back and and show me my bed, and we're going. And you know what the college students do? They get back, they bring out their games. They're partying till 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And the next day on the bus, Mon and I are arrested. We're all right. Where are we going next? And they're there. Oh. Anyway, Dr. Bolin uh, led the trip, and he, was, he spent 10 years um, with, uh, with Ibex. Now, some of you know the Ibex in Israel looks like a, a wild goat, but it stands for Israel uh, Bible Extension program. In other words, students can go live in Israel for a semester and they'll go around to the various sites. What a, what a great opportunity. So he did this for 10 years and he put this uh, program together. Some, so sometimes I'm showing pictures from him. I'm not violating copyright. I bought all the stuff and you're allowed to use them in PowerPoint. So just want to clarify that this is one I don't know where he got the picture from but this is 1980 and most would recognize if it's not Peter's house it certainly would be one like the one he lived in now what happened later on is you see the thing that looks kind of like a sports arena or something with a flat top um, the Franciscans came in and they built a church over the top of it so when you go there you got to kind of duck down and go what's what's down uh, inside of there. You see the synagogue to the right. Anyway, this would be where we are at in chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, he would have been probably in Peter's house, and he comes out of that, and he starts walking along, and he's going to go southwest toward the Mount of Beatitudes, walking down there, and then when you get further down, it's called the Cove of the Sower. And most think that this is probably where uh, this took place. Now, what did I do with my notes? Here we are. There was a fascinating study done, and it was published in the Biblical Archaeologist on this, on this uh, cove and its acoustic properties, and the person had it's called Capacity of Natural Theaters in Palestine. 
And the guy that did the study concluded that five to 7,000 people could fit in that area right be below the road and the entire area of the hillside could accommodate uh, 10 to 20,000 people all the way up on the top. And studies suggest that there is much better sound when it comes from the center of the cove, from the shoreline, than from the base of the, of the slope itself. So by sloping the audience and standing away from the base of the slope, one optimizes speech communication. You go, now why did you bring that in? I brought it in because Jesus, the massive crowds that came to him. And so he got in a boat, went right offshore, and here's, here's uh, some sitting on a rock way up there. Now, the boat would have been a lot closer than that, but they say you could stand down there and speak, and the guy up there on the rock could hear you. So, you know, the Bible, what we read here is not myth. It's not something invented by the later church, as liberals say. No. Matthew was a tax collector. I love that phrase when we'll come to later on. And Matthew writes uh, that Jesus said uh, to the religious leaders who rejected him, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you do. And Matthew probably just kind of smiled as he penned that and thought, oh, the grace of God, yes, me, a tax collector getting in. So here's, here's where we're at uh, in uh, the first century. And the setting is all the same in all three synoptic gospels. Sin, soon, opt. They're viewing the same event together, but they have, they're complementary. They have different aspects that they're bringing in. And Matthew 13 says, Jesus told them many things in parables. Mark says, the same thing. Luke says this, when a great crowd gathered and came to him from town after town, he spoke to them through parables. So this is a change in the teaching of Jesus. Now, some say that's the only way he taught thereafter. That can't be right because, because you'll see later on uh, Matthew, particularly 21 through chapters 21 through 23, he's not speaking in parables. But maybe right now there is, there is a change. So what is this that we're finding this teaching in parables? It's not all the parables. As a matter of fact, you, you, I sat down and I, re I read all the parables recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke on this occasion. You can do it in 10 minutes. I assure you, Jesus taught for more than 10 minutes in that boat. What that indicates to, to us is that the gospel writers are selective. They're selecting certain ones for us to hear. And Matthew records the most. All record the parable of the soils. All record the purpose of parables that we looked at last week and we went back to Isaiah, to you, to you, blessed are you, disciples. It has been granted, given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to those outside, it has not 
been given. So we have a selection of parables, and the one that we are looking at this morning is only in Matthew's Gospel. So we can't compare, and this is probably the one that is most debated, uh, this particular parable of the wheat and the tares. So parables, these are parables of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He gave four to the multitudes, the soils, wheat and tares, mustard seed, yeast. And then he gave four just to the disciples, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great value, the dragnet, and the parable of the master of the house finishes it off. So, what are the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven that is given to disciples but not to the multitudes in general? Now remember, it, it seems almost counterintuitive because what is a parable? Para, follow, to cast alongside. Jesus takes something that they understand. Their agriculture, something there, very common. And so he uses something and he is teaching spiritual truth through that. They get the illustration. They get the parable. They get what is laid down, but they don't necessarily get the spiritual truth that's involved in there. So what are they looking for in the kingdom to come? Well, they're looking for Jesus to come and crush the opposition, rule with the rod of iron, and uh, bring in a final consummation, a culmination of all things. Were they mistaken? No, they were not. But Jesus, in teaching the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, I remind to you again what a mystery is. We looked at it in Ephesians. You can see it at the end of Romans when Paul talks about a mystery is not your mystery novel, trying to figure out who did it. A mousterion is something that the seedbed may be in the Old Testament. Gentiles will be saved. But Paul says this is a mystery. The Jew and Gentile are going to be in one new community in Ephesians. He says that's not there. So it's something that is revealed in the new. This is something that they didn't know. So when it comes to the parables of the kingdom of heaven, this is something about the kingdom of heaven that is not seedbed maybe there, but it's not in the Old Testament. It is not contradicting anything about the kingdom in the Old Testament, but it's explaining to them something that they didn't understand. Now, I've quoted before. Um, well, let me backtrack, first of all, because some see that the kingdom of heaven is, is only future. That uh, when we talk about uh, kingdom, you can't have... Uh, the, they'll talk about delay, postponement, etc. But first... For one thing is sure, only believers, the righteous, who hear, believe, and do the words of Jesus are in the kingdom of heaven. We saw that in the Beatitudes. What's the first one? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, and it's very emphatic, it has a pronoun in there, um, Arcan Hughes nails that one. He says, theirs, theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. 
You don't have unbelievers in the kingdom of heaven. And what is, what is poor poverty in spirit? It means you're bankrupt in spirit, in righteousness. You need a righteousness from God. And so I strip away all my pride. I turn to God. I believe upon Him. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. O Lamb of God, I come. That's poverty in spirit. And how does one enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, that's clear as well. Jesus began to preach a number of times, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, here's the controversial uh, little uh, verb, and it is in the perfect tense, engaken, and it means has come near. It doesn't say it's here. It says it has come near. It's close. It's right at hand. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, Mark 1.15, and believe in the gospel. So I, I put passages down there. What, what that tense means, now the verb occurs a number of times in the New Testament. What, what that verb means in that particular tense, something has happened in the past, and now there's a result of that right up to the present. So, let me, let me give you some examples where it's used the same phrase in the same tense. How near at hand is the kingdom of heaven in the sense it's at hand? Well, Jesus there in, in the garden, rise, let us be going, see, my betrayer is at hand. Well, then Judas shows up, he's right at hand. But also in James 5, 8, James says, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, or has drawn near. Well, <laughs> it's, it's not like there in the garden, 2,000 years have elapsed. So that particular phrase, it just tells it it's its hand, it's, it's imminent, but it doesn't say it's here now. But when we come to this phrase, after continuing opposition and with the religious leaders, they can't deny that Jesus is casting out demons. They've just seen examples of it. And they say, yes, but what you're doing is by, by the power of Satan, Beelzebul. And Jesus says, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God, not any different from the kingdom of heaven, has come upon you. This is not simply nearness. This is arrival. That verb, fathano, with a object of that preposition says it has come upon you. Combine that later on with Matthew 21, 31, where Jesus says tax collectors and harlots are entering. I don't think that's just a zero tense present. The kingdom of God before you. So there is some kind of sense in which the kingdom of heaven is, is, is now present. That is what the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are beginning to explain. It is not a denial of Psalm 2 or the passage I read to you in Psalm 21, Zechariah, all, all those passages that talk about that. This is a mystery, a truth that is being now given by Jesus about the nature and the arrival and the progress 
of the kingdom of heaven. So I read this to you before um, by John MacArthur. The kingdom that Jesus proclaimed ought to be understood in three dimensions. A spiritual kingdom, I believe in a millennial kingdom as well, and an eternal kingdom. Now whether you're post-millennial, amillennial, everybody believes in the first two, a spiritual kingdom and an eternal kingdom. Though it is invisible and spiritual in the present, it will one day be manifest as a physical earthly kingdom. All those prophecies are going to take place. And in his first coming, the kingdom preached the good news of salvation, and he established his spiritual kingdom in the hearts of all who believe. And some say, well, you can't have a king kingdom without the king here. Well, that's Christ's kingdom is being advanced even now, as Colossians 1.13, Paul says, they're being transferred out of the domain, that's exousia, the authority of darkness, and into the realm of the Son of God. So to follow Jesus Christ is to seek the expression and honor of His kingdom and righteousness. And so I do, uh, that is my conviction, that the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are also talking about a spiritual and invisible sense of the kingdom without contradicting or denying that those prophecies in the Old Testament are going to take place. So it's often called already but not yet. I gave you that example. Dylan has my books already, but I haven't died, not yet. He's free to come in and move, use any of them, so, so is Trevor. And one day, Lord willing, the Lord's going to take me home, and I don't want anybody burdened have to haul off all tons of books out of there. So that's Dylan's problem. Uh, <laughs> that God would bring in his kingdom is no secret. All Jews look forward to it. The new truth now given to men by revelation in the person and mission of Jesus is that the kingdom that is to come in power, as foreseen by Daniel, has in fact entered into the world in advance in a hidden form to work secretly within and among men. The kingdom of heaven proclaimed and inaugurated by Jesus and his earthly ministry will continue right up to the final consummation. Now let me make this clarification. If I'm right on this, and other writers are right on this, it begins right now in the ministry of Jesus. We're still under the old covenant. And it's going to come right down to the consummation when Jesus is going to subdue all his enemies. And we're going to look at casting what, where this parable of wheat and tares, he's going to cast some in a lake of fire. He says angels are going to come and gather them. So this is a much broader category than what we call church. Now some see church in the Old Testament let me clarify it this way. For me, um, I, I look at it this way. What happened on the cross? Jesus ratified, confirmed the new covenant. It was, in that sense, it was inaugurated. Then we see the Spirit poured out at Pentecost. So if you want to call that new covenant community or church, well, the kingdom of heaven is a broader category that includes all those who repent of their sin and believe upon him from that time 
down to, and it will include people in the church and tribulation, millennium, whatever. This, this is a broad category of the way it's defined here in this mystery. So, he gives this presentation of the parable to all the multitude. Now, you may have it translated here as the kingdom of heaven is like, but actually it, it's a passive, it's, it's a past tense. It says the kingdom of heaven has become like this. Jesus is saying it's already like that, not is or will be. So, then let's go to this parable and read it. Oh, we got the Lord's table. Am I going to have to speed up? Okay. Um, the kingdom of heaven may be compared, and I say that's it should be, has become like this kind of situation. A man sowed good seed in his field. This is now you don't always have the same items in the parables that all mean the same thing. So don't interpret this this seed here in the same way that we looked about the parable of the soils because it's going to identify what the seed is. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed rather than weeds, uh I think a better Zizania. Doesn't that even sound like something? Yeah, Zizania. It means, that's the Greek word. It means tares, uh, poisonous, uh, um, look alike to wheat, among the wheat and went away. And the plants came up, bore grain, beginning to. The, the tares also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have? Tares, he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the tares, you root up the wheat along with them. They would have known that the roots grow together and to have done that would have jerked up both together. So no, lest in gathering the tares, you root up, root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in harvest time, that's... I will tell the reapers, gather the tares first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my uh, storehouse. Then they come to him later on in verse 36, and uh, he goes into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us. This is a word that means, tell us plainly. I mean, if you read this, do you? if you didn't have the explanation, even with the explanation, some aren't sure about what this thing means. So I wouldn't have a clue what that means without the explanation. So we want to be very careful. Now, let me say something else about parables. Don't make them walk on all four. In other words, some will come and they find stuff in that parable that I, I just go, where'd you get that from? Take the main there's one main point in a parable. One main point. Now there are sub-themes that may be in there, but when you try and take everything, and Jesus will take seriatim, item by item, and he's going to tell us what to the disciples what the main items are and what they represent 
but really it's getting to the main point. The main point is going to be if you're a tear, you're in trouble. And how do you know you're a tear? Well, you're a wicked person. It's going to be explained in here. And if you're not a tear, what are you? You're good seed. Now, the good seed here happens to be a person. So, I got to get through this thing somehow. Okay, let me. Um, Deuteronomy 8 7, just the importance of wheat. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of wheat. Did I go to? Here it is. So here's a, uh, uh, a wheat field. Remember the path that we talked about where the good seed and the parable of soils, they didn't have fences, so you, he would be walking along there, sowing the seed, and when he tries to sow it over there, uh, nothing is uh, going to um, bear fruition. Um, uh, there's some wheat just beginning to go up. This, this is by Yad Hashmona. There's wheat coming up that doesn't have tares in it. We went to Yad Hashmona. This is not Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, but this is Yad Hashmona, where it's it's down there in Judah, and they ha this is this is a uh, community of Jewish believers, genuine believers, and they. We, we took a tour there on that first one. I, I remember walking underneath that thing. Um, here is a, another wheat field that's uh, um, coming up. Um, now, you just see a, a few thorns, see the little purple tops on them. But here comes tares. Uh, no, not this one. This, this is the wheat. Now, here comes the tares. So you say, where there's good wheat on the right. That's near Mount Tabor. And wheat with tares. This is at Ein Gev. Remember, we stayed at, at Ein Gev. So uh, come here, little cursor. Where are you at? Uh, ah, I'm, I'm really. Okay. So, so you see on the white path, and you see... Uh, that doesn't look like wheat with the straight. That, that's tares. Uh, those are tares. Almost everybody agrees that's what it's being talked about. Now, the the name tares, uh, or it's really darnel, lolium in Latin means darnel. Either, I, I never saw darnel before. Well, you're looking at some up there. You can see it sticking up among the wheat and temelent. It's actually long make run. Tamulentum means darnell of drunkenness. So this is kind of a poisonous uh, uh, look-alike, and if, if the cattle would eat that stuff, they'd get sick. And if people would bake bread with it, you'd, you'd get a little dizzy, almost like you were drunk. So I'm thankful my wife doesn't bake with tares. Um, uh, good good bread. Now, the, the point is this. This is poisonous stuff. So look, look here what happens in the explanation. Explain to us clearly. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Remember all those emphases on Son of Man that we've seen? In order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority upon earth to forgive sins, take up that pallet and walk, and he goes out the door. 
And son of man, sometimes it emphasizes humanity, but when it comes back to Daniel, one like the son of man, this is deity, and the two are combined together. So here's the sower, the good seed, and guess what? The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. And you can't be in the kingdom unless you're poor in spirit. You've repented of your sin. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. That's Satan. That's Ephesians 2.2. That's John 8.44, other passages. And the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. So here's the main point. The Son of Man will send his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom. Now we're not talking about, now we're talking the end of the age. Now we're not talking about the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about the consummation here. And he's going to gather them out. And what's going to happen to them? He's going to throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've wept, but I've never gnashed my, well, maybe I grind them. Thanks to Tom, he gives me a thing in there so I don't ruin my teeth. Um, but th this, is, this is something of intense physical and spiritual pain. The point is this. You're one or the other. He's going to gather out of his universal kingdom all causes of sin. That word actually means all who cause stumbling and all who practice lawlessness. They're lawbreakers. And they're going to throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous, going back to Daniel, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. You got two people here. You got two fathers. Either Jesus Christ and God is your father or Satan is your father and you act like him. You do the characteristics of your father or you do the characteristics, the traits of Jesus Christ. It's one or the other. And the point of this parable is this, is explaining to them, he who has ears, let him hear. Pay attention to this. This isn't make-believe. This isn't myth. All the liberal scholars they say, no, no, this, no, this is real stuff. It's genuine. It's going to happen one day. Jesus is going to return. And there's going to be judgment. So I ask you this morning, what are you? What are you? Are you wheat? Or are you, a, are you Darnell? Are you tear? Now this goes beyond the parable, but it's also, what are we doing? We're out proclaiming the gospel to tares and saying, repent of your sin and become part of the wheat so you don't, you don't suffer this, this loss. Um, I have to stop. I'll, I'll come back with uh, some applications next week. We're coming to the Lord's table. You know what this should tell us when we come to the Lord's table? Humility. Humility. Why am I at the Lord's table? Why am I and many of you convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord Jesus has provided a perfect covering for our sin He's the Messiah. He's coming again. You know why? Because it's been revealed to you. It's been revealed to you in your heart. 
and in your life. And so when we come to the Lord's table, one of the great words that should be upon our lips is, thank you, Lord. Thank you. No pride, no arrogance, just thank you. And I look around and I thank God that there are others in the family of God here this morning that we're not left alone like Noah just ate. There are many of us. So, Andy, come lead us in the Lord's table.